Good morning, everybody. Be praying about who to invite to the promise. Um, it's a series that starts actually next week, and it'll go uh, up until we're going to actually do our, our service on the Wednesday before Christmas. And just as a reminder, we actually won't have a service on Christmas Day. Create plenty of room for everybody to have time with their families, but we will be doing the service on that Wednesday night. So details will be going out about that. So be uh, looking for that. And again, just be praying for... Um, who you can invite to that, because everybody needs hope, everybody needs love, joy, peace, and that's something we're going to be talking about and seeing God do in great measure. We are going to be finishing today um, a series called uh, New Creation. So I've been doing this for, uh, this is the fourth week, and so we've been speaking from a a scripture in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Hopefully you know this by now. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Or have they? <laughs> and so that's part of the, what we've been talking about is so oftentimes as we become believers, sometimes our life doesn't seem to reflect the new nature that we've been given, the fact that we're new, new creation. And we see things like, you know, behold, behold all things have become new. All thing, the old things have passed away. And sometimes we see patterns that come into our, our new life with Jesus they follow us into, those, into our new existence as a believer. And because of that, if we're not careful, the enemy can lie to us and say, you're actually not a new creation. You actually still have an old nature. All of that is still there. Um, I, I shared this before. One of my professors in Bible school said, your old man is never so dead that he can't be resurrected, which sounds really awesome, except it's not at all biblical. <laughs> and that was coming from a Bible school professor. So we can get it wrong. And so part of talking about the, the new creation is, um, if we don't build the foundation correctly in who we are, if, we, if we're not built on a solid foundation, Jesus tells uh, parables about this. He says, you know, about building your house on sand instead of solid rock. And the rock is Jesus. Of course, we know this. But so often, we build on something different than what we're supposed to be building on. So there's this incredible scripture in Corinthians. Again, this is chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And it says, for we are co-workers in God's service. It says, you are God's field you are God's building. So he's working in you. He's working on you. He's, he's creating fruit in you as a field. And also he's building you as a building to, to have a purpose, to do something. And then it says this. It says, by the grace God has given me, Paul, this is Paul talking. He said, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Some people can lay a foundation as an unwise builder. You, if you're an unwise builder, you don't build well and things begin to fall down. So he said, I was a wise builder. And he says, and someone else is building on this foundation. And this is what's powerful about this, why it's so important. It says, but each one should build with care. So it's, it's not just build willy-nilly and it's, it's no big deal if you get it wrong. It is a big deal. He says, here's why. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one, or the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here's the challenge that happens so often is if we don't understand that the foundation for our relationship with God has already been built in what Jesus did on the cross and and him being raised from the dead and then me deciding whether I actually believe that or not. If I believe that, then I let the work that he did on the cross be finished. It's 100% finished. He said that uh, right before he, he died. He said, it is finished. And that signified that everything that God had promised before the foundation of the time, the Bible says, that the lamb had been slain. 
And so all of this time had passed, Genesis chapter 1, throughout all of the Old Covenant, into um, the, you know, Jesus showing up on the scene and Matthew being born, and we're about to celebrate Christmas season. And, and the Messiah was coming, and then he did come, and then he did die on a cross, which a lot of people didn't understand what was happening. And on that day, the Bible says that, that the, it was the day the lamb was slain, and at the same time that the lamb was slain in, in the temple, um, the, the Bible says that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where nobody could go unless they were perfect, right? Or the sin had been made, uh, uh, they'd been made atonement for their sin, which was the high priest once a year, and if he got it wrong, he died. That room that was separate, that was holy, and no one could come in, the Bible says that curtain was torn from the top down, signifying that God had now opened a way into his presence, right? Where you would not die, Right? <laughs> but it didn't come from the bottom up. It came from the top down. So God, what Jesus did on the cross made a way where there was no way. And so if you get this foundation wrong, everything you build on it will be wrong. And what happens so often is not just that we get the foundation wrong, that rather than believe the foundation that's already built, that we build onto the foundation, it, what we end up doing is we actually create a whole new foundation. And so the foundation then comes something along the lines of Jesus plus prayer, Jesus plus Bible study, Jesus plus you better read your Bible, you better give, you better show up in church more often, do the right thing, always do the right thing. You do, do work harder, brother. <laughs> right? That's what it turns into. It turns into something out of your own effort is what's going to get you there. But understanding this foundation, once it's built on, once you build on this foundation, what, and if you build it well, what happens is, or sorry, once you recognize the foundation is already built, and then you build on top of it, you never go back to a different foundation. So you never go back to someone saying, hey, you know what, it's Jesus plus also you have to do this. You just look them in the eye and go, dude, that's not the foundation. You are building on, you're building on a bad foundation. So maybe go back and read what the Bible says, and you're never going to be convinced ever again that you have to do something in your own work, Right? So here's what's the challenge, though. Our desire to grow opens up this whisper, though, of I should be doing more. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to sense that I can be more, I can do more. The part of the reason why is because God is the God of more, right? He is a limitless God, and we are limited creatures. And the more we discover of him, the more we walk in who he is and who he made us to be, that door begins to open wider and wider to a way bigger God than you thought he was. I remember the first time I, I discovered that God works in the supernatural um, in, in our day. That blew my mind, and it took me off on a journey that I, I can't even begin to tell you some of the stories of what God's done in my life because of that. But there was a moment where I did not believe that that was true. I was stuck, before I became a believer, I was stuck in a box, right, that said that, that naturalism is the way to go. Nothing happens in the supernatural. All that's a big lie. It's people's heads. It's, you know, it's, it's bad thinking. Everything, it's science. Just follow the science. <laughs> right? And we know if we're not careful, sometimes the science is more political and sometimes more biased than what we might believe it is. So we have to be careful of that. But here's what it does. If we, if we build into this, if we build on the proper foundation, then we, we become safe from enemies of grace. But if we don't build on the foundation that's already been built, then we become susceptible to the enemy of, the enemy of grace because our heart is to be more and do more because we recognize I'm a brand new baby in Christ and I'm supposed to be growing up into maturity, right? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be moving somewhere. And so as I grow in maturity, um, the Lord is coming to me often and saying, hey, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a mature son and take this area on in the family business, right? And so he wants to grow us and mature us. 
But if we're not careful, it makes us susceptible to three enemies of grace, and three of them. The, the first one's pretty obvious, is the devil, right? So there's a scripture in uh, 1 Peter, it says, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil. So you have an enemy, <laughs> and it's the devil. Here's the thing about the devil. He doesn't want anything you have. He doesn't want you. He, doesn't, he could care less about you because he's, he's supremely selfish. That's just who, he's, who he is, right? What he is is he's the accuser of the brethren. He has lots of names, but one of the names is the accuser of the brethren. So what he does is he comes and he accuses you of not being good enough. And if you don't know any, any better, you listen to that accusation and you believe his lies. And then you begin to build a foundation or build off a foundation of lies as opposed to the truth. And so it says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he's like a roaring lion, but he's not a roaring lion. And what he's doing is he's looking for someone. He'll, he'll bump up against you. He'll, he'll try to present to you a lie. And if you believe the lie, he will devour you with it. That's the, what, the way this scripture teaches. So here's what's really interesting. There's this uh, book, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Last Battle. And there, in it, there's an ape named Shift, and he begins to take all the earthly glory for himself. So he enlists the assistance of a tired old donkey named Puzzle. Anybody ever read this book? It's, really, it's a really good book. So having come across an old lion skin, the ape sews it into this cumbersome costume and parades the donkey around in the lion's costume, right? And then this is what he says. He says, no one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion's skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close. <laughs> and if the light was not so good, and if Puzzle did not let out a bray, and it did not make any noise with his hooves, he said, you look wonderful. Wonderful, said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. And so obviously that speaks to the other book that C.S. Lewis wrote, and Aslan being a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a lion. <laughs> the devil's not, but he pretends to be, and he comes with this authority, but the only authority the devil has in your life is if you believe the lie he tells you. Remember the first lie he tells humanity, did God really say? The other side of that was, is God really good? And that's the lie that he tells us all the time. So, it's, so Satan's like that. He comes in and he tries to deceive. And so he's an enemy of grace. And everywhere that Paul went when he was preaching this gospel of grace, the, he would stir up the, the enemies of grace. And these guys would come in. And the second one is, is, is part of that process. And they were called legalists. Judaizers, the Bible talks about. You read about it all the time in the letters. And so here's why the Judaizers or the legalists hate the message of grace. And it's because it renders their efforts absolutely meaningless. In other words, if it's about me and my strength and me doing something, then I can do two things. One, I can feel very, um, I, can, I can feel good about myself and I can ignore what God is requiring of me, right? I'm doing, I'm doing a good job, actually. I'm not really, but I'm pretending to do a good job. And the second thing it lets me do, is because I'm a really good rule follower, is I get to look down my nose at you. I can judge you. I can look at everybody else and go, um, you're not living up to the standard. So here's a picture of this. This is Luke 11:42. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who were legalists, he said, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. So think about that for a second. He said, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So legalism puts the emphasis on the external 
to the neglect of the internal. Jesus said it this way. He said, um, he said to the Pharisees, he said, you're like, you're like a cemetery, right? It, like tombs. Back then, they necessarily bury them in the ground. They would bury them in rock tombs. And he said, and it was a garden. They made it really pretty as we do our cemeteries often, right? Because go, we go visit the cemeteries. They're, they're well-kept. They're beautiful. Flowers everywhere. But Jesus said, you guys are like that. On the outside, you're beautiful. But internally, in the tomb, you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of decay. You're full of rot. Internally, you're a mess. But externally, you look really good. And that's the picture of legalism. And so Jesus was always grieved by people's sin, but he didn't, he didn't just love them in their sin. He loved them out of their sin. But he started by loving them when they were innocent. The scripture says it this way, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The godly for the ungodly, right? And so here's a, here's a list of a few questions to ask yourself and see if maybe um, you have been susceptible to legalism or maybe you're a legalist yourself. <laughs> so number one, an us versus them mentality. Those who believe in Jesus are good. Those who don't believe in him are bad, right? Believe in Jesus, you're a good person. You don't believe in Jesus, you're a bad person. So we make it about good and bad as opposed to alive and dead, right? Number two, you or others in the church who never believe they're, uh, you or others in the church never believe they're doing enough for God. So you say things like, I should pray more often rather than I love to pray. See, it's a subtle difference. I should be doing more for God. Why? Why should you be doing more for God? Out of gratitude from your heart or because somewhere inside of you, you're trying to get God to love you or trying to get God to approve of you. So number three, you actively avoid people who have a different worldview from you or who struggle with an outwardly visible sin. We, we talked about this before. The mentality, if we're not careful, is um, I, I'm safe in the confines of the church. I have community. I have believers all around me. We have a similar value system. We have our own subculture, and it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with having a, a strong family like that, but the danger is anybody who's outside of the family, you, you won't let them into the family. So we say this at DCF, you can belong to this family before you believe and before you behave. So what does that mean? That means if you come in and you're in sin, that's okay. We love you anyway. We're going to do what Jesus does. We're going to love you out of your sin. <laughs> We're going to love you to the place where your sin's going to become uncomfortable and you're going to recognize that that's not who you are. It might have been what you did, but it's not who you are. And there's something new and something amazing for you. That's what we're going to do, right? Here's another one. Uh, number four, your attitude of being right is more important than being kind. You ever have that? This can show up really quickly on Facebook. <laughs> I have to prove my point. I don't care if I destroy the person. I have to prove my point, right? Number five, you're smug about your Bible knowledge and feel superior to those less educated about Scripture. I know the Bible and you don't. Therefore, I'm good, you're bad, right? It's like uh, clergy laity. Well, it's really clergy laity. You guys are just peons, really. If we're, you know, I went to Bible school. I'm amazing. You guys are just, you know, if you don't listen to me, you can't even find Jesus. <laughs> Some of you guys go, is he serious? I'm totally not serious, but that's the way, if we're not careful, even pastors can come across this way, right? Rather than me trying to equip you for the works of your service, you know, the service that God has called you to, I want to make myself big. I want to draw attention to myself because I'm insecure and there's a bunch of things going on, but I actually know the Bible better than you, so I use it as a club. So maybe don't do that. Jesus knew the Bible more than anybody else because, you know, he was it. You know, he was the word, right? <laughs> he didn't just write it. He was the word. And he didn't beat people up with it. He rescued people from their sin with it. 
So something to keep in mind. Number six, people who are deeply hurting due to their sins or poor choices feel humiliated and embarrassed, and embarrassed around you. Do you make people feel that way with your superiority? Or do, does your heart hurt for them and your longing is to rescue them out of it and that's what they feel? Do they feel love and rescue or do they feel condemnation and judgment? Number seven, this list has made you very uncomfortable, <laughs> angry, or indignant, and you want to start defending yourself with Bible verses to me. Anybody want to raise? Is that you? No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your <laughs> But if, if that stuff makes you uncomfortable, you might be a legalist. And so it's helpful to go, hey, I'm not comfortable with the way I'm feeling about this. So present that to the Lord and say, Lord, I feel like maybe I don't love the lost the way you love the lost. And part of us becoming missional and walking in this foundation of being missional is how do I love people who are not like me? How do I love them without superiority? How can I love them and say, I want to love you. I want to hear your story. I, I recognize some of the brokenness in your life. I never, you never have to apologize for truth. Just because you love somebody doesn't mean you don't tell them the truth. Oftentimes, it's the reason you do tell them the truth, right? So Jesus will always instruct sinners to go and sin no more. You see him do this throughout Scripture. But his first response is compassion and kindness. Why? Because the one who could judge the most didn't. Right? So how, how in the world do we do that? How can we judge if the one who judges the most or could judge the most didn't? The third enemy of grace is human philosophy. Um, Colossians 2 speaks about this. It says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. High sound. This is the New Living Translation, by the way. It's a paraphrase. Um, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So where are you getting your worldview? Is it the church? Is it your denomination? Is it your pastor? Or is it Jesus? Right? The good news is you got a book like I did. You were issued a book in the beginning called the Bible. Right? You have access to it. And everything you need to know about God's in there. So read it and then do what it says. <laughs> Super simple, right? So it goes on, it says, verse 9, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And listen, so you are complete through your union with Christ. So why he, he mentions human philosophies. Uh, it says human, empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and spiritual powers. So what does human thinking and spiritual powers do? It takes this away, that you are not complete in your union with Christ. So if you find yourself going, you know, I'm just, I just don't feel like I'm there, Lord. Now, I'm not talking about, Lord, there's, I have a mission that I'm on with you. That's unfinished. Of course you're going to feel that. That's what I'm talking about. But you're standing with God, your relationship with God. If you feel like you are not complete, then you have been hearing human philosophy, human thinking, and spiritual darkness coming at you and lying to you. So it's a dangerous thing. And again, the devil um, uh, legalists, so legalists are spiritual religious people who are in line with Satan, which is a frightening thing to say, but it's still the truth. And then the human world, the Bible says that, that the enemy, the devil, is the God of this world. He's the prince of the principalities of the air. He's here. He's moving in human philosophy. As a matter of fact, when the Bible says when we fight spiritual warfare, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. So the, even this human philosophy, that's not where our battle is. Our battle is with what, where it comes from. And when we go after that battle, and the way we go after that battle in the beginning, especially the battle for our own salvation and our own walk with the Lord, is realizing that I am complete in him. It has been finished. The foundation has already been laid. I cannot lay another foundation that was laid because the one that was laid was Jesus Christ, period, right? So let me just give you an example. I remember 
First time I, I was in the military in, uh, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, and we didn't see a whole lot of the stuff that we see now, but it was still it was beginning to happen, uh, especially in terrorism, where especially young people would strap a bomb to themselves and go blow themselves up, walk up to a get, you know to a, a, a military gate and blow themselves up, or drive a, a a truck into something. So we saw a few things like ha- that happen, and it happened more and more as we kind of have moved on. But I always wondered why, like what would possess someone to take their own life that way? That makes no sense, right? What was interesting is they did a study, Israel did a study on bombings, um, on, on these kind of bombings over about a 10-year period. And one of the things they found was right before this would happen, these very devout Muslims um, would, would actually go off on this rampage of sinfulness. They would just go and do basically anything they could think of. And they're like, that makes no sense. It's not in line with their devout following of, of, of Islam, right? But what they found was this. In the Quran, there's a couple of things that happen, but in the Quran, there's this thing called Taba, which requires one to complete a series of complete steps to receive forgiveness from Allah. So what they would do is they say, I have to do this like six or seven step process for every sin I've committed. And if you committed the sin again, you no free, you know, no free lunch. You get to go back. You have to start all over again. And then there's this really interesting thing that talks about the unpredictability of, of the forgiveness of Allah. So in the Quran, it states again, surely Allah does not forgive that anything should be associated with him. And he forgives what is besides this to whom he pleases. And whoever associates anything with Allah, he indeed strays off into a remote area. When you go back and study it, what he's saying is, I forgive who I want. And you don't, you don't get to decide, I do it how I want, and it's unpredictable. Like, there isn't a set way that you can get forgiveness, right? You have to follow these principles, and even after you're done, you're still at the mercy of whether he chooses to forgive you or not. So that's really frightening. frightening. But here's the one thing that can circumvent that concept. The requirement is you die in a holy war. But suicide is a sin, <laughs> right? And I'm like, that makes no sense. But what you do is you convince these guys this, in this, in, you know, in this extremism, what you, you convince them that if they go and take out the enemies of Allah, right, that by doing so, they're not committing suicide, they're dying for a holy cause. And here's what's really interesting. Dying through jihad is portrayed as an automatic entrance into paradise. So then you look at the pattern and go, they, they live like Nobody else, right? You know, they, got, they got crazy right before they went off and blew themselves up. Why? Because any sin they committed when they did this, when they killed themselves, you know, in this, in this holy act, that it forgave everything that they ever did. So it's interesting. It's like, and you find more and more that, that people were doing this. Why? Because the pattern of religion in general, this is that human philosophy that I, I know I've wronged, God somehow, and I know I need to make atonement, and it's up to me to do that, and so I have to find a way to do that. So we create religions, right, where we atone for our own sin. What's fascinating about Christianity is it's the one world religion where someone else atones for your sin on your behalf. So what's the work that you do? When we read the scripture last week, um, they said, what are the works that we do to please God? And Jesus said, the work that you do is to believe in the one he, he sent. Someone paid the price for you. You don't have to do it. And here's, what, here's what's so sad, though, is often what happens because of this human philosophy and these, these enemies of grace is we understand that enough 
to find ourselves saved. We, we say, God, I accept it. I believe there's nothing I can do to do this. And I, I walk in the gospel and believe the truth, the good news that you paid the price and all I have to do is believe you and trust you and put my trust in you. And now I've done that. And then from there, we go back under the law and start trying to somehow please God as a believer, <laughs> right, in our own atoning work. We have to do something. We're convinced by someone that there's something I'm doing now that is going to make God happy. So the implications of that are, are far-reaching. So because of this, um, Paul said you need to stand firm. It's a very strong um, word that he brings. And so what's really interesting is you read Galatians, and these Judaizers, these legalists who are in line with the enemy, come with human philosophy and also you know, philosophies of the devil, and they said, you, Jesus isn't enough. You have to have Jesus and you have to follow the law of Moses, especially that you have to get circumcised. And people were doing this, right? And so Paul goes after this and you see him, the one thing he gets so angry about, like really, really mad. And also the one time you see Jesus really, really angry is not with the depths of someone's brokenness and sin, but in the religious philosophy that was more about the external than it was about the internal, right? So two, it's the, Paul and Jesus, you see them in their writings. I mean, the writings about Jesus in the Gospels. In Paul's writings, he's, he's fiercely angry with these Judaizers. So he gets mad because the Judaizers come to Galatia. They're there with Peter and Barnabas. And the Bible says that they were so convincing that Peter and Barnabas got caught up in these lies, so much so that now Paul comes to another apostle, the only other apostle we know of who walked on water besides Jesus, right? Pretty powerful guy. He was the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the man, and he was in Galatia visiting these guys. He was eating with the Gentiles. The Judaizers come in, and it's you know, against the law to eat with, with, with Gentiles, and so he removes himself and quits eating with them. Doesn't say anything, but he does it. And Paul said, oh, no, 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 no. You do not get to do that. And the Bible says, I rebuked him to his face because he was to be blamed. That's powerful. He's, he's basically saying, for all time, everybody knows, I rebuke Peter, <laughs> right? So in heaven, when they're standing there, we're going to talk to him and go, so, so what was it like, Peter, getting rebuked by Paul? I bet it was fun. Why'd you do that anyway? <laughs> now, we're not going to say any of that because all the tears are going to be wiped away, right? But understand that this guy was the most powerful um, person that we know of in Scripture, Peter and Barnabas, besides Jesus, got caught up in legalism through these enemies of grace. So if Peter and Barnabas could get caught up in this, do you think maybe we might be susceptible to that as well? See what I'm saying? So we have to guard. So because of this, Paul goes after this and he says, I want you to stand firm. That scripture I read earlier, it says 1 Peter 5.8, says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. You, here, here's how you do it. He's looking for someone to devour. How do you keep the devil from devouring your life? People come to Karen and I a lot, and they'll say, man, I'm just struggling. So, oh, it's just so difficult. Oh, you know, and the devil's attacking me. He's, ah, ah. And, I, and like, we get it. We've been there ourselves, right? But what's the answer? I will fight, you know, I will, come on, devil, <laughs> right? Is that what you do? No, 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 no. The Bible talks about in other places, I think it was Titus. He's like, the Lord rebuke you. Like, I, I don't bring an accusation against the devil, Jesus has already done that. He's already rebuked the devil. I'm just doing it in his name. And I'm like, Jesus took care of you. So that's how we're going to handle this, right? You don't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil because he is your enemy and he is a powerful being. 
So what you do is you resist, you stand firm and you resist him. How? In the faith. You believe in Jesus and you keep that foundation solid. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. How many of you guys have read that scripture or heard that? Anybody? Most of us, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Listen to this. Stand firm then. In other words, if you want to stay free, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So what does that mean? You can be brought back underneath the law. Just think about it logically for a second. While I was yet a sinner, the worst I've ever been, Jesus died for me. When I was in the worst place and had rebelled against God, I thought I was better than him. I thought my ways were better. I had made myself my own God. And in this moment, Jesus had already died for me. The worst I could possibly be. Then I come to an understanding of who he is. I lean in and I say, God, forgive me. Thank you that your forgiveness is made available and that I get your righteousness and I walk into this. And then now I'm leaning into the kingdom of God. Why in the world would I think that God would not want to help me in those moments when I struggle with sin, when he was willing to come when I wasn't struggling against sin at all? So there's this place now that you are a believer, you are a son or a daughter. And your identity is who he says you are, not what you've done. So now the enemy comes and he just wants to remind you, you know what, think about who you were. You know what, look at the sin, look at the pattern of sin you're in. You're not really a believer. You're not strong. You don't really love God. And he accuses and accuses, and he's throwing stuff at you to find something that sticks. And the way you win is you stand firm and you don't back down. The foundation is true. This is who Jesus says I am. You don't get to say anything different. Right? So I want to talk for a second about something called indicatives and imperatives. I know this is super, you're like, oh, I couldn't wait for you to talk about this. <laughs> so this is a grammar lesson in Greek, right? So indicatives and imperatives you find out throughout, you know, different languages. Um, but it's really simple. But before I get into that, I want to read a scripture about why indicatives and, and imperatives are important. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So why is this important? One, be diligent. You can't be slack about reading your scripture and understanding the scripture. I know lots of people who have memorized the Bible and do not understand what the Bible says. The devil has memorized the Bible. Think about that for a second. He knows the Bible better than you do. So if you don't understand the truth of scripture, he will use the truth of scripture against you. How do I know he did that? Or how do I know he'll do that? Because he did it with Jesus. Three different ways he came at him. He didn't come at him with some other human philosophy. He came at Jesus, right, in the wilderness with Scripture. And Jesus turned it back around and said, that's not what that Scripture means. I'm paraphrasing. This is what that Scripture means. So you can try all you want. And the Bible said he tried that against Jesus, and then he left him for a season. Remember, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is exactly the pattern that Jesus shows. So 2 Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Not to get approval from God. That is not what that scripture says. To present yourself already approved to God. How? How do you do that? A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed in your work for the kingdom. You don't have to walk with shame. Why? Because you've rightly divided the word of truth. There's one foundation, you know what it is, and you're not backing down from it. You're standing firm in your faith. So, now on to indicatives. Indicatives of the New Testament tell me what has been done. The imperatives tell me what I must do. And it's important that you understand these two concepts, right? So the New, Te New Testament office tells, often tells us something that is so, but if we're not careful, we attempt to change it into a command to make it so. 
That makes sense. So we read something, the Bible says, you are complete in Christ. And you turn that into, I must become complete in Christ. It's subtle, but it's how the enemy often gets us. So what is an indicative? Simply a statement of fact. It states what is or it indicates. This is how, you know, it indicates something is true. For example, the book is on the table is an indicative, right? So what is an imperative? A command to do something. It's imperative that you do something. It attempts to control what will be. It's a command to make something happen. So the imperative would be place the book on the table. It's a command to do it. But if the book, hear me, if the book is already on the table, what are you doing trying to put the book on the table? <laughs> and we, we look at that and go, well, that's common sense. A toddler can get that. But we read it in Scripture, and I'm going to give you some examples. So here goes. This is Philippians 2, 12. And sometimes the indicative comes first, sometimes the imperative. So sometimes the truth is there first, and then the command. Sometimes the command comes first, but then the truth of how you can follow the command is there. So it'll make more sense now that I do this. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean try to be saved with fear and trembling. It says to work it out, to see what do I, with this salvation that I've received, what does it mean to live this out? That's what that scripture means, right? But it's saying, you do this. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not you get saved. Understand the difference because people miss the scripture. But it says, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it tells you the, the, the truth about it. It says, for it is God who works in you. So because God is at work in you, you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, see how this works. So here's another one. Um, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. That's the imperative. This is what you must do, right? Then it says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So look at this. In Matthew, right, Matthew, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We've read this. We look at it and go, wow, that's the most powerful sermon ever. And he says something in the Lord's Prayer. It says, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. That is an imperative with an imperative. Why? Because it's under the law. Jesus is talking to people under the law. Matthew 5, 17, he changes the subject from the Beatitudes to talking about the law. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not even going to get into heaven. He says, if your eye offends, you cut it out. He gets really, really brutal. Then he says something like this, unless you forgive others, God will not forgive you. Now think about that for a second. Why did God do that? Why is the law there? We talked about if you use the law properly, it's, it's wonderful. If you use it improperly, it'll destroy you as a believer. So Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. What does that mean? That means he's given you a new nature, and because he's given you a new nature, that new nature wants to follow God, wants to, to do what God is requiring you. It wants, and it's also been given the power to do it. But in the law, it wasn't. So the imperative in the law was, unless you forgive others, God won't forgive you. So you try to forgive others, you can't, and you realize, I cannot do this in my own strength. I need someone else to save me and rescue me and do it on my behalf. So the Bible says that the law was a tutor until Jesus came. The law was saying, you cannot fulfill the standard that God requires, but someone is coming who will do it on your behalf. Believe in him and quit trying to do it yourself. So that's what the scripture's talking about. Be kind and compassionate, because now Jesus has come inside my heart. 
right? He's given me a new nature. Now I can forgive others. Because listen to it. The imperative is be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Same command that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6, right? But now it's flipped, and the indicative, the truth is there now, says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So he's saying, because God has forgiven you, you can forgive others. Not only can you, you must. It's an imperative that you do it, right? So you say, well, I'm, I'm trying to forgive, I'm trying to forgive, I'm trying to forgive. Does that mean if I forgive someone, I'm trying, I don't want to get too deep in this. But just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you have to trust them again. They have to earn your trust. Trust is earned, right? So people struggle with this. They're saying, if God's asking me to forgive someone, does that mean I just let them run over me again? No, don't do that. You have more value than that, right? So I forgive you. I, I want to trust you again, but you're going to have to earn that trust, right? And that's fair and that's good and it's biblical. It's called setting healthy boundaries. But my forgiveness is not based on whether they deserve forgiveness or not because they don't, nor do I. But because Jesus has forgiven me, the indicative, I can forgive them. You want to learn how to forgive somebody? Focus not on how to forgive them. Focus, focus on how much you have been forgiven. And you'll be able to forgive people much, much easier. So, last scripture, just as an example. Colossians 3.15, and this has a lot of those in it, as most scripture does in the New Covenant. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, this is the truth, this is the indicative. If you've been raised with Christ, and truth is, if you're a believer, you have. It says, then seek the things that are above. That's what you're called to do because you've been raised with Christ. It says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above. That's the imperative. This is what you must do. And then it says, not on things that are on earth. So things that are above, positive imperative. Negative imperative, not on things below. Don't get caught up with that, right? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can do all those things because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, right? And then it goes on, it says, when Christ who is your life appears. Christ who is your life. If you're trying to find life outside of Christ, you're not going to find it. He said, I came to bring life and life more abundantly. Life is in him, not in your striving, not in your seeking to be happy or find purpose. Everything is found in him. And the more you lean into him, the more you discover your purpose, the happier you are, okay? And the happier you are more often. It goes on, it says, when Christ who is your life appears, the indicative, then you also will appear with him in glory. So because of that, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You do it. Think of the scripture. This is a powerful scripture. And, it, and it's, it's the same thing. It says in Hebrews, lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets you. So a couple things. One, what is a weight? It's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy to, um, to uh, the Olympics. If you're going to run a race, get rid of all the things that are unimportant to run in the race. Strip down to the bare minimum so you're not carrying extra weight. So don't get distracted with all the things that are not important, Right? Lay aside the weight that so easily distracts you. And the sin. What is sin? Missing the mark. Where do you miss the mark? What is, what is it that easily sets you off? Do you have a problem with alcohol? Do you have a problem with pornography? Do you have a problem with insecurity? What is the sin that so easily besets you? Whatever that is, the Bible says you lay it aside. But you know what we do? We believe the lie of the enemy and we pray and we put ourselves back under bondage and say, oh God, pretty please, would you take this away from me? And God's like, no. 
I won't because I already did. And so if we're not careful, we stay babies. And we keep asking God to do things that he said for you to do. That's why this, this morning during worship, my challenge to us as believers was we're praying, God, this is a move, this is a move. We're not waiting for something to come from heaven. Something coming from heaven already came from heaven. We're going to celebrate that at Christmas, right? And then he died, and he brought heaven to earth in you. So now everything that God's doing in the earth, he's not going to send it from heaven. He's already done that. And he's put his spirit inside of you, and he's called you to be on mission with him. He's given you everything that you have need of. He's given you your salvation. He's given you your identity. He's given the truth of who you are and what he's called you to do. He's given you the promise that you're going to live forever, so death, you don't have to be afraid of death. He said, I'm going to be your provider, so you don't have to worry about the economy or who gets elected in the next two years for president. You can settle it in your heart and go, hey, I have my part to play, so don't not vote and then complain about politics. You don't get to do that, right? It's your job as, as, as a citizen of this world. Like Paul said, I'm a citizen of Rome. I'm a citizen of heaven first, but I'm also a citizen, citizen of Rome. He didn't get to vote, you do, right? But regardless of how that turns out, you pray, God, if you're God, this is what's going to happen. It's like, no, no, God, I trust you. I'm going to do my part. And then whatever happens, I'm still on mission. I'm still who you said I am. None of those things change. And nothing can move me. Why? Because I know who I am. The foundation has been built. So let me close with this. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not becoming one. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So how do you summarize this series in a few words? Simple. Be who you are. Just be who God says you are. Be who God made you to be. Grow in your understanding of him. Grow in understanding his nature and his character. If you have this mindset where the enemy says, you know, God's just kind of cruel, actually. You know, God's allowed all this stuff to happen. If, if God was good, he would. And it's the same lie that he started with in the beginning. He hasn't changed anything. He's still doing it. You know why? Because it still works. But it only works with those who are uninformed. It only works with the immature. It only works in the world. He has power in the world. He's the principality, the power of the air. He's, he's the God of this world. That whole human philosophy, self, seeking selfishly, all the, whether it's power or pleasure or, or whatever, that's him working in, in the sons of disobedience, the Bible says. But that's not what's happening in you. What's happening inside of you is you are a new creation. Everything's passed away. Everything has become new. It takes the limits off. God, I could never, God, I, we say this all the time. Lord, I'm not educated, therefore, Moses is like, I can't talk good. God's like, that's why I gave you your brother, and it'll be fine. Just trust me, I got this worked out. Your problem is not how to make it happen. Your problem is to discover what I'm doing and just co-labor with me, right? So this is a quote from uh, an SMU professor and theologian. He said, if one has received the gospel, then he has already received God's love and with it the command to love his brothers. Everything you need to do the works of God has been done in you because you believed in the work of God, which is the one believing in, the one he sent. He finishes out with this. Because Christ's love is both a gift and a claim 
a benefit to receive, and a power to display. So as we leave this series, my passion for you is, what would it look like if you believed the truth about who God says you are? What if you quit believing the lies and the limitations? What if you said, instead of I'm sick and I'm never going to get better, saying, Lord, I believe that you made me whole by your stripes I've been healed. Have I seen the manifestation of it yet? No. I don't have to strive for that. You said it's been done, so I'm going to believe into it. I'm going to believe you for it. We see this happen often where there's a moment of a miracle, and it's awesome. There's no work for you to do. There's nothing for you to do because Jesus did it instantaneously. But there's sometimes the challenge to you to believe into the truth that God says is true. It's not work for you to do that. It's not striving. It's making a decision that I will stand firm in what God has said about me. The word this morning to some of you guys about you know, the latter years being greater than the former. You, you only have it, it's not good advice. You either have to believe it or don't believe it. If you believe it, you're going to go from that truth, Lord, now that you said, what are you about to do in me, and how do I co-labor and walk in this? And when you do, you'll recognize that not only is it a gift that, that God's given you the gift of salvation, but he's given the world the gift of the sons of God, making the kingdom come to earth in this time. We then become the power of God in every sphere of influence that we represent right here. Some of you guys are on the base in, in government, some of you guys are in business, some guys in medical, some of us are in ministry, but all of us have a sphere of influence. And God's saying, what I am doing in you, I also want to do it through you. Will you believe what I've said about you? I've given you everything that you have, you have need of in Jesus. It's all there. But you have to make the decision to believe it's true and then step out on faith and begin to do what God has called you to do already. You get to become or be who you already are. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness, Lord. Thank you that on the cross, Lord, you said, it is finished. Lord, significant in my life was, Lord, when you said that, that was 2,000 years ago and it was already finished. I can't come into anything, Lord, that you're doing and somehow complete it. Lord, I can't make you love me anymore. I don't need to, Lord. I can just trust in your great love for me. Receive, Lord, who you are in me. Become, Lord, walk into the truth of my own identity, Lord, and see your great works displayed in the world today, Lord. You said those who know their God would do great exploits for him. So, Lord, thank you that you're, you don't need to, uh, Lord, we don't need to make you love us. We don't need to get you to do something significant in our lives, Lord. We just need to believe in who you made us to be and then walk it out. So Jesus, I pray that every one of us would take this in, make sure that that foundation has already been built, that we don't build another one or build on it faultily, Lord. But we trust you for what you're doing in our life. In your name we pray, amen. If you have need this morning, we'd love to pray for you. Our team will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. If not, have a wonderful week.